This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, recorded live down here at Abu Dhabi Finance Week. If you can hear the speakers behind me, it's because there is already an awful lot going on. That includes Charles Hoskinson, the entrepreneur, CEO, founder uh, of Input Output Global and Cardano Foundation. He's been speaking to Tom in a spirited and entertaining chat that's on the Bite Size Business Breakfast this morning, as is my discussion with Abdullah Al Nawami, the CEO of of Abu Dhabi Exchange, the ADX, they have put together an ESG index. We'll find out more about why and how it's going to work. Plus, speaking of listed companies, uh, Dubai Taxi, which has its IPO ongoing the last day today, has increased the amount that's being offered to retail investors. We're going to find out why and what that means for IPOs in general with Samir Lakani, Managing Director of Global Capital Partners. Plus, we've been looking at Saudi's successful bid for Expo. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Right, we will get on to the business side of things first. The COP28 getting underway. Where's COP28 being hosted? At Expo City, Dubai. Okay, where's the next expo? (laughs) Well, the next expo is Osaka, but the one that's taking place after that in 2030 will be... Saudi Arabia. Uh, Following in the UAE's footsteps, Saudi Arabia has won the right to host the Expo World Fair 2030. It will take place in Riyadh. Vote results were revealed late on Tuesday. So South Korea's Busan and Italy's Rome were also in the running. Riyadh won 119 votes, Busan 29 and Rome 17. But as we know, the event takes place every five years. And as we saw in 2021, it also attracts millions of visitors and billions of dollars of investment. So apparently they show in Saudi's video lobbying uh, in Paris, they showed a video of Cristiano Ronaldo um, playing, uh, as we know, who plays for the Saudi club Al Nasser, but that was projected before the vote. So the Saudi capital has proposed to host the event between October 2030 and March 2031. But you've already had congratulations from leaders of the Emirates, His Highness, the UAE President, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan being one of those as well. Serena, thank you very much indeed. We've been getting more focus on that expo announcement from who, Brandy Scott? Yeah, we're looking at the economic knock-on effects of holding an expo. Something, of course, that Dubai knows only too well, asking Katija Hack, Chief Economist of Emirates MBD, about it. Riyadh will host the World Expo 2030 after it won 119 votes, well ahead of competitor cities Busan, South Korea and Rome, Italy. The kingdom will spend $7.8 billion on hosting the event, which will occur a year after it hosts the 2029 Asian Winter Games in Neom. Saudi Arabia is also expected to be selected to host the 2034 FIFA World Cup. Okay, but what does it all mean for the coffers? What does it mean for GDP? Committing to host big events like the World Expo and the FIFA World Cup helped to anchor long-term investment in infrastructure. Where there is a global event to deliver on such a scale, there is a fixed timeline over which the infrastructure has to be put in place, which then drives activity and growth. So there you go. We've seen it happen with the world, a cup in these parts, uh, and to happen an expo uh, in Riyadh as well. We are, of course, recycling our expo facilities 
this week, are we not? Indeed, we are. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how uh, the Expo City site uh, has been transformed into the zones, green, blue and otherwise, for COP28, which starts tomorrow. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. An absolute pleasure to be joined by a man who very shortly will be on stage down here at Abu Dhabi Finance Week. Looking forward to this chat because uh, we're here with an industry leader, a pioneer, if you like. He's flown in from Wyoming, from where he is based. A technology entrepreneur, mathematician, a man who has founded three cryptocurrency-related startups in the past. Current projects focus on education, educating people like me and you out there about cryptocurrency and all the potential therein. Uh, He leads the research, design and the development of Cardano, which is a third generation cryptocurrency that launched back in September of 2017. And he's here in Abu Dhabi to speak about building a digital assets infrastructure. It's a warm welcome to Cardano founder Charles Hoskins and welcome to Abu Dhabi. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Great to have you with us as well. Looking forward to the chat inside as well weather too. You've brought the beautiful weather with yeah. you. A little bit humid earlier, but as soon as you walked in, things got cool. Yeah, yeah. Hence the, t- the shirt and everything. We're looking forward to this one. Listen, Charles, your subject up on stage shortly is building a digital assets infrastructure fit for the next decade. Whenever we talk to business pioneers, we talk about international best practices. That seems to be the phrase that goes around. When I look at blockchain, when I look at crypto, when I look at the future of finance, that doesn't seem to be an international best practice. So let's look at it from a a few few areas in terms of building the infrastructure. Let's start with your home country, the Mm -hmm. USA. How are they going about at the moment? Are your friends at the SEC? <laughs> uh, we're having a lot of fun uh, in the United States. I think they're going about it the absolute wrong way. Um, first off, compliance doesn't work in general across the whole world. You know, if you look at bank fines from 2000 to two, uh, 2023, $380 billion worth of fines and issues. So if it was working well in the traditional financial space, you, know, you wouldn't spend a, quarter, a third of a trillion dollars in fines and issues. So in general, the problem with the financial markets is that they were never designed to have an asset that can be everything all at once. You don't have something that can wake up as a commodity, go to bed as a security, be a loyalty point on the weekends, and then be a currency every now and then. You know, it's currency curious. So if you look at things like the CFTC or FinCEN or the SEC, they're supposed to deal with very regimented, well-defined marketplaces that aren't global and respect and respond to a, a particular pace of innovation. Cryptocurrency industry, in 13 years, we've gone from Bitcoin to this amazing multi-trillion dollar industry that's covering everything from representation of real estate to intellectual property to uh, new ways of doing commodities to nation states like El Salvador actually adopting them. So the regulatory regime is out of date and the only way to usually resolve this is usually through legislation, a political process. The problem is, unlike the 1990s when we passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act or any of these other pieces of hallmark legislation that kind of regulate the internet in the United States and the NSFAUP, uh, we have a political situation where the there's no bipartisanship anymore. So we can't move forward, and so as a stopgap, the executive branch has been doing legislation through enforcement. So it's very inconsistent, there's no clear rules, there's, there's, it's like reading an Oracle of Delphi or something like that. You have to <laughs> kind of wiggle your way through. But it's a great opportunity for jurisdictions like Abu Dhabi and uh, Dubai and others because what they do is they work with the industry and they say, hey, we can create clear regulations and clear standards. It doesn't mean you're not regulated, it just means you can have a conversation and kind of work out a compromise that's best for the business. I wanted to ask you about that. So let's pass forward the 14 hours all the way yeah. to Abu Dhabi where you find yourself this morning. A little bit more of 
of a carte blanche, if you like, when mm -hmm. it comes to regulation as well, looking at approaching things from a, with a fresh approach. How do you read the sort of regulation and the infrastructure here in Abu Dhabi and Dubai at the moment? Well, what's nice about it is that it's uh, forming. And so what that means is yeah. there's, th you can have real mature conversations about asset classification, about when you need a license, when you don't need a license. And also the license regime can change in weeks to months, not years or decades and through you know, le uh, judicial actions or these types of things or enforcement actions, but rather just by having a conversation. So there's a lot of innovation that's happened. Uh, ADGM is working on a digital foundation, uh, a digital asset foundation law that's really uh, leading the industry. They're talking about DAOs here. They're talking about good standards for non-custodial and custodial wallets. So they're starting to really become the, the world leader in terms of proactive regulation. And what's nice is that they invite the industry as a whole to come here and learn and listen and assist. So we see people from Singapore here, people from Switzerland here, from the FCA over the UK here. Some of the pioneers of Mika are here. Obviously we got invited. We brought people over from Wyoming because mm. we passed 31 laws in Wyoming for, uh, for cryptocurrencies. And uh, the former Deputy Secretary of State and one of the legislators came out to and met with the ADGM on a moment's notice. Mm -hmm. And they actually were there and say, we're here to learn, listen, and assist. So it's incredibly refreshing to work with a regulatory body that's like that, as opposed to one that's like an oracle, <laughs> you know, that you can't talk to. You're refreshing, you're a breath of fresh air when it comes to cryptocurrencies. And that's one of your mantras, is to, is to educate people out there. We've got a lot of viewers here across the region as well. What's, what, what's the biggest misconception about cryptocurrencies at the moment? I think the biggest misconception is, is it would be like saying the internet is only for email because email was one of the first things that was like a killer app. So cryptocurrencies, people tend to think about tokens and they say, oh, the only point about cryptocurrencies, you have all these different tokens, they have funny names, they go up and they go down and people are making a lot of money. But really what we're talking about is the decentralization of fundamental infrastructure. Yeah. So whether it be how your central banks work or how you vote or how supply chains work. And if you look at the policy goals of the world, like COP28 is actually here um, actually in just a few days in Abu Dhabi, they're talking about, hey, we want to rebuild the whole world to be ESG compliant. Well, how do you prove, for example, the level of carbon of Apple or of Microsoft or any of these other firms without harming their competitive advantage? So when you talk about a global world, you need different technology to do that. Mm -hmm. And that technology has to be intrinsically decentralized. And really what the cryptocurrency industry is about is saying, how do you build something that gives us all the stuff we have today, but instead of having somebody in charge, nobody's in charge, and therefore everybody has a fair playing space in a fair world. And in a multipolar world where it's not just America, but there are many nations that are doing things, you kind of have to have a system like that. And the magic of cryptocurrencies is that they evolve very quickly. So the, what we were talking about in 2017 or 2015 was radically different than what we talk about today. And, and if you say, hey, our voting system, our supply chain systems, our healthcare system, our electronic medical records, all these things can run at that speed of innovation, that means it's like getting a new iPhone every year. You get these radical revolutions in governance and in social systems, and they get better, faster, and cheaper yeah. over time. And you get better service for everybody over time, which is not the case right now in most governance systems. Charles, listen, uh, we are not going to let you go. I know you're on stage very shortly, building additional assets infrastructure, fit for the next decade with this man, Charles Hoskinson. Keep fighting the good fight thank my you friend. sir great to have you Cheers. here in Abu Dhabi we'll see you very soon just the highlights this is the bite-sized business breakfast the ADX yesterday they've launched its first environmental social and governance ESG benchmark index ahead of COP28 uh, that index has been put together with the help of the guys from FTSE Russell I caught up yesterday with Abdullah Al-Nuaymi he is the CEO of the ADX to find out how it's all going to work 
what we are launching. Uh, really, uh, ADX start uh, initiative uh, from a uh, couple years back uh, regarding the sustainability, uh, the the ASG framework, environment and social and carbon governance. Today, uh, we complete our journey of having a tool to evaluate that journey. When I said evaluate, evaluate the commitment of the listed company to the ASG framework. This is what we learn, basically. And this is something you've developed with the guys at, at FTSE Russell. What will it allow investors to, to do when they're deciding who to invest in? Now, why we choose FTSE Russell? We choose FTSE Russell because of the uh, wide exposure possible for all the investment. First, second, now in terms of the investor, they can compare our listed company with other listed company around the world. Okay, mm-hmm. to see the commitment of our listed com- company regarding the ASG and sustainability framework comparing to other companies. For that reason, we use FTSE, and now we give a tool for our investors or who are interested in ASG to compare the listed companies and their commitment to the sustainable framework and the ASG framework. Okay, what kind of things are they being judged on? Can you give me some examples? It- it's almost ten theme. First, ADX signed with the United Nations, mm-hmm. the initiative SSE. It com- uh, continue from thir- 32 factors, okay? In- environment, okay? Carbon uh, emission, um, gender equality, human rights, okay? In terms of the society and also corporate governance, okay? And in the index now currently with the, working with the FTSE, we have ten themes because we need to unify also. It's very important for investors when they compare, like an example, a company in Abu Dhabi, comparing to a company in uh, US or in UK. The theme is uh, unified by FTSE, and we have like 10 themes, okay? Continue the responsibility in terms of the environment, responsibility in terms of social responsibility, and also corporate corporate, uh, governments. Are you hoping that this will put some positive pressure on listed companies? Yes, as I said, as mentioned from the beginning, we are on a journey. Okay, we start with awareness, then commitment, and today, no, we evaluate your commitment. What other products could be built off the back of this? This is in the future. We look uh, to uh, have uh, a product, a tradable product around the ASG, uh, ASG framework, mm-hmm. okay, and tenders. It's a derivatives proteins. But this is in the future. And how well did the companies do? I mean, I know um, that you've effectively brought in sustainability reports into the listed companies for the, the ADX. How well did they rank on this index? Now, in the index also, we increase our criteria. Now, in the index will be 24 companies on, okay? And we put a criteria uh, in the ASG rating. The criteria, the company to be eligible to be in the index should be above the average of GCC companies. Okay. If it's below the average of GCC, not only UAE, okay, then will not be eligible to be in the, in, in, uh, the new index. Okay. You've seen uh, a lot of ESG-related products launching for the ADX. Green bonds, I'm thinking. What does the pipeline for that look like for you at the moment? Uh, Promising pipeline because uh, we saw really a huge commitment from our listed company regarding the green finance, okay, and sustainable economics. 
not only in the bonds, okay, even in their practice, okay, and their operation. Uh, we saw also they try to divert also their products also to have more responsible responsibility uh, toward the environment and uh, to more uh, to more the environment and the, what the people wants. Are you seeing much interest internationally in listing green bonds here? Yes, there is a uh, there is a, an interest. Uh, we know about the backlash what's happened in the United States, but not similar what's happening here in our region. And our region now uh, still uh, there is an interest uh, internally from internal and from external about those type of products, uh, and we try to promote that. Um, really, there is a difficulties also. We should understand the reporting of ASG framework is very difficult. It's not easy for the listed company. One of the main reasons, there is no standard uh, standard format mm-hmm. for the reporting. There is no standard framework. Uh, and this is a create a little bit of a problem. But we try now to unify, working with the food. So you try to unify that framework, one thing. Second thing, we try to provide the investor a tool to compare the performance of the company in terms of the share surprise, mm-hmm. their financial, and their commitment to the ASG. I can't let you go without asking you the IPO question about what we're likely to see on the ADX in the next six months. What can you tell me about the volume of companies you have at the moment going through that process? There is a a promising pipeline really in ADX. As you know, uh, this year uh, we have five companies around more than four four billion dollars in terms of the IBO, the primary market. And uh, we are anticipating uh, a good pipeline in the future, inshallah. Do you think that 2024 will be as good as 2023 or even bigger? No, I hope more than 2023. Yeah, and it's promising. I see it as a promising year. You take that at the moment, that's for sure. Some very promising positive news coming uh, from Abdullah Salam Al Nawaimi. He is the CEO of the Abu Dhabi Securities Exchange, the ADX down here at Abu Dhabi Global Market. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Dubai Taxi Company, increasing the number of shares that are available to retail investors. I'm very pleased to be joined on the line by the boss of Global Capital Partners, Samir Lakhani. Good morning, Samir. Good morning. So we have Dubai Taxi Company not increasing the offering, but changing the allocation. What do you make of that move? It's a lollapalooza. Uh, it's great for retail investors. It's uh, something that the markets have been seeing the steady increase in retail demand ever since this IPO wave started taking off about a year and a half ago. Demand from the retail segment, uh, especially with the new uh, population that has come in, the expat investors, there's been increasing interest to participate in various sectors of the economy. Just by way of comparison, uh, the Salix IPO had an allocation to retail investors of about 7.8%. And uh, since then, we've seen a steady increase uh, in the allocation to retail investors by most companies that have gone to market. Why not increase the whole offering, though? Why just jiggle the percentages? Institutional investors are still ending up with, what, about 88% of the overall offering, the, the stake of 24.9%, 24.99. That's a strategic decision. I think that was about the same stake that was offloaded for Salic. 
institutional investors have been getting uh, their fair share for all this time. It's been the retail investors that have been clamoring to get uh, just that little bit above the minimum allocation. Uh, and there were reports uh, uh, about uh, the extraordinary rush to 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 fill in subscription forms with uh, with leverage. So I think uh, the companies are starting to adapt and giving retail investors more space towards uh, these lucrative offerings. I love the reference, by the way, Lollapalooza, to Charlie Munger, um, yeah. who has passed away, the investor, at the age of 99. Did notice that. Let's have a look, though, at the the bigger picture. If we take away the allocations, are you surprised that they haven't increased the offering itself? I think it was a strategic decision. I don't think uh, it it just it mirrors what was done with Salik. The mix that has changed is also not surprising. Again, just another point of comparison, Adnoc LNS, which, you know, most people would have thought would have been uh, uh, more of an institutional offering, actually increased their retail investment stake, uh, retail allocation to as much as 19%. So there's been this steady clamor for from retail investors. And I think they'd be, they'd, they'd, they'd be happy with the news that they're getting more and more allocations towards these IPOs that have gone on to do you know, reasonably well, exceptionally well in most cases. Will it affect what happens in first day trading? I mean, I realize 2% isn't the biggest of moves, but do retail investors behave differently once the, the shares are up and, and secondary trading begins? First day trading, I mean, you've got these day traders, you've got short-term traders, you've got the speculators that will always try to come in and, and move out. Uh, the pattern of activity that we've seen with most of the IPOs uh, is that, uh, you know, because of the allocations that they have been getting, especially at the retail end, they just tend to buy and hold. That's been the pattern of secondary market data. Now, in the case of Salik, where, for example, the retail allocation was 7.8%, uh, we've seen a steady increase in retail demand right throughout the course of last year. The same can be said for Empower. The same can be said for Talim. Uh, business models that that uh, that retail investors understand. So you know it's hard to it's hard to uh, pin the motives of 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 what investors are doing. What we're seeing from the data is that uh, that the vast majority are still uh, building medium to long term portfolios. Okay, well, we are down in Abu Dhabi. I was speaking yesterday to the boss of the exchange, Abdullah Al Noemi, about the new ESG index that they have put in place with FTSE Russell. What will that mean for the investment decisions, well, that companies like you make and the international investment firms make, your international clients? Look, it taps into another spigot of demand, right? There's, there's no doubt that uh, uh, ESG driven investing. It, it now accounts for about 12.2% of uh, total U.S. market cap uh, investment activity, about $8.6 trillion. There are more than 477 uh, mutual funds, about 170-odd ETFs. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, another, it's another spigot to tap into. And it also increases the, the pressure for companies to adhere to these ESG standards if they're going to attract capital. So it's a, so it's a win-win. Uh, what other IPOs are we expecting? I mean, I know we've got the announcement of, of 
Pure Health, for example. Um, but amongst those that have been rumoured but not, not announced, who could we still see come to market here? Who would you want to see come to market in the capital? There's no surprise of what we would want to see, but but in terms of what what is likely and that is that has been announced as as potential candidates, we've got other uh, aspects of the, the ADQ portfolio, the the Multiply and uh, and IHC portfolio from Dubai. We've still got a few entities that are left from the privatization. Uh, drive that is left. But I think what you're also going to see, as you have seen in the last quarter of this year, more and more private sector companies. I mean, we've just had an announcement of, of a significant divestment by the Asta Group uh, to, to, to Gulf-based uh, private equity providers. You're going to see more of a drive from private sector to take advantage of the liquidity conditions and the renaissance that Ray Dalio talks about that is that, that we are now currently seeing in the UAE to tap capital, uh, to, to tap into these capital market opportunities. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. The head of Global Capital Partners, Samir Lakhani, speaking to us about the news that Dubai Taxi Company has increased the allocation of shares that will be offered to retail investors up to 12% from 10% of the offering. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.